Today we're going to talk about the gospel in a culture of consumerism. And Debbie read the story, so I'm not going to read the story, but I'm going to work through the story before we draw out some ideas together on what consumerism is and how God can give us great strength and, and grace in a culture of consumerism. So we have before us a story of demonic possession. It's a severe story of demonic possession. Uh, for what it's worth, what I think Luke is doing is he's actually ramping up the authority of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He starts out with some small miracles, and if you look carefully at the miracles, they become a little bit bigger and a little bit wider. So in this chapter, for example, he's rebuking the winds and the waves. Remember before, I think it was chapter 7, it says Mary Magdalene was delivered from several demons. Now we have more than several, we have a whole legion. And so the authority of Jesus is being brought to bear on all the results of the fall, whether it's death, uh, whether it is disease, demonic possession, Jesus' so-called cautions as we think about demons, demon possession, and things like that. Here's a couple of them to consider, and I'm going to work through the story this way. Point one, demonic reception. Uh, Jesus here is going to be received uh, by the demon in a rather uh, aggressive way. So as we think about that, number one, I, I take a view of C.S. Lewis on this. C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he wrote a great little parody, a Christian parody called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read The Screwtape Letters, you can download it free online. It's a great little um, kind of parody of a conversations between demons. And in the preface of that, he says something that I think serves as a good guide for how we should understand demonic activity in this world. Let me read you the quote. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that is people, can fall into thinking about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe in their existence but feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I could not agree with Lewis more. I don't know where the balance is on things like how do we understand demons and Satan in the world and what their activity is. Like, is the devil behind that activity over there? Is that person possessed or is that mental illness? Those are questions that kind of run through the minds of believers. C.S. Lewis tells us there are two extremes that the church should try to avoid. Number one, we don't want to take what he today, I think, would call the secular approach. The secular approach says we're completely rationalistic. There is no such thing as demons in the world. There's no such thing as a literal devil. All we have is the material world. Um, as you know, in the academy, there's no room for demon possession at all. All erratic behavior is tried to be explained away medically, and virtually no consideration is given to the possibility of any kind of demonic activity. That's extreme number one. Extreme number two would be an unhealthy preoccupation in the spiritual world, where we think the devil is under every rock. And so we try to explain everything with demonic activity. And people get into things like channeling, Ouija boards. Uh, every little sin that we have is attributed to the devil. We have lust. We have consumerism. Ah, the devil must be behind that. All erratic behavior is just considered, never, it's never medical or mental illness. All it is is demonic activity. I think Lewis is right. I think it's good to balance out the extremes on this. We don't want to be rationalistic. We're not secular, but we don't have an unhealthy preoccupation either. The second thing is this. Contrary to what people believe, even Christian people believe, not all sickness in the Bible is treated as demonic, like there's a demon behind it. Uh, there's this feeling that modern people have that people in the ancient world just believed that demons caused everything. 
Uh, you know, if somebody was sick, it must be a demon. If somebody had a headache, it must be a demon. If it rained and it ruined your house, oh, a demon must have done that. There are groups in the ancient world that believe things like that. There are other groups, by the way, that believed in complete rationalism, just like there's a lot of groups in the first century. Here's when you read the Bible, you want to notice this, and here's where I'm going with this. The biblical writers do not attribute all death and disease to demonic activity. In fact, we saw an example of this, right, when we went through Luke. Remember in chapter 4, when Peter heals, uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law? What does he say? Luke says, he rebuked the fever. Yet there are other places where it says, he rebuked the demon. See, Luke differentiates these two. And Luke is a doctor, by the way. He understands this well. Sometimes, most of the time, he's rebuking the fever. Somebody's sick. We all get sick. It's not because the devil made them sick. They're just sick. And therefore, Jesus rebukes the sickness. Other times, there is a a kind of a, a... erratic behavior, and there's some kind of sickness that is tied to some kind of demonic activity, and then the demon is rebuked, and then the person is healed. But the point to appreciate here, what we don't see is the early Christians attributing every sickness and every problem to demonic activity. That would be a mistake to think that the early Christians believed that. Remember when uh, Paul writes to Timothy? Timothy had a stomach ache. We don't know why. Bacteria infection probably. And remember what Paul's remedy was? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul is recognizing the devil didn't make you sick. The bacteria did. I don't know if he understood that completely. And the answer is not an exorcism. The answer is is a glass of Pinot Grigio or something like that, you know? (laughs) Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. It's medicinal. The early Christians did not believe that every time someone was sick, it was demonic activity. That's a misreading of the text. Notice next time you read through the Gospels. Sometimes Jesus rebukes the demon. Sometimes he rebukes the sickness. That's intentional. Now, in this story in particular, there's a visit to the other side. They sail to a country or a, country or a town that is opposite of Galilee. The Gentiles live there. We know this is Gentile country, number one, because historians can tell us that. But number two, they have pigs in their economy. There's no way the Jewish people are going to have this many pigs in their local economy. These are unclean animals. We also find that somebody is running in the tombs. Uh, The Jewish people, of course, would consider this person ceremonially unclean. You don't really get a feel for that as you go over here into the other country. So that's the demonic. Now, notice, by the way, this possession is to be regarded as quite severe. Now, verse 27, it's unusual. He's naked. That's shameful. Uh, he's probably sexually devious. He probably harasses people as they walk by. Now remember, you had a city here. You had these main roads and you'd have tombs along the way. If you want to do commerce and you want to get into a boat, you've got to walk through these tombs. That's where this guy is living. He's living in the tombs out there, these big elaborate tombs. Every time one of the merchants has to walk down that road, this guy is going to harass him. He's going to come out of the tombs. He's going to throw things at him. He's going to hurl all kinds of insults. Every time a lady walks through there, she would have to be escorted by a number of men because this guy's going to come out of the tombs. He is naked. He is an absolute lunatic in their eyes. They also have unusual restraints on this man. It tells us here in verse 29, he is bound with chains and shackles. Not chains, not shackles, chains and shackles. That word shackles, by the way, is the Greek word for feet. 
So the picture we have here is this man is so erratic in his behavior, they bind his hands and they actually bind his feet, and maybe they even are trying to tie him together, but we're told that he is shattering them. That's what Mark says, he shattered them. So we're not talking about ropes, we're talking about chains. This is serious stuff. Notice also the unusual number, verse 30. Jesus says, what's your name? And the demon says, legion. Now, I don't know if this is literal or metaphorical. It doesn't make a difference either way. Legion in the Roman army is 6,000 people. And so does that mean literally there's 6,000 or probably just means many, like a lot, many that you couldn't even count. And this is far worse than Mary Magdalene, who we met in chapter 7. Notice the demonic recognition in the next point, verse 28. Jesus encounters the demon. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's interesting that the demons recognize who Jesus is. The people don't recognize who Jesus is. That's the irony of the passage. By the way, this is the second time in the book of Luke that Jesus is called the Son of God. Remember the first time he was called the Son of God? It was by who? It was by Satan and the temptation. The point that Luke is trying to make is everywhere Jesus goes, he's being rejected by people, but every time he bumps into a demon, they recognize this is God's son. That's the irony of it. That's the depth of unbelief we're seeing here in the gospel of Luke. The irony cannot be missed. There's the demonic request, point three. Look at verse 30. Jesus asked and said, what is your name? He said, legion, for many demons that entered him. And he begged him not to. Uh, he begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That abyss there probably is a, it's a metaphor, and it's also the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, around the Sea of Galilee, they believed that spirits would be cast to the deepest part of the earth. And so for them, that would be the Sea of Galilee all the way down. They call the abyss the depth of the Sea of Galilee. That's the metaphor there. So it's, here's the irony of the story if we were in the first century. The demons say, don't cast us into the abyss, which is the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. But they go into the pigs, the pugs run off the bank, and they are in the what? They're now in the abyss. That's the irony of the story here if we were in the first century and we understood the word abyss. A herd of pigs, verse 32, was feeding there on the hillside. Uh, We're talking about a massive herd of pigs. We know this because Mark tells us there are about 2,000. That is a lot of pigs. That's a big part of the local economy there, right? And we're left with several questions here, questions that I don't really have good answers for. Why did Jesus subject the pigs to this? Why didn't he just expel the demons? Why did he cast them into pigs? Why did the pigs run off the bank? Why did the pigs just run off the cliff instead of run into the woods? We don't have all the answers to these questions, so I'm not going to speculate on these. But what we are seeing in this passage is two things. Number one, the authority of Jesus. He's not just casting out many demons. The gloves are off. It's 6,000 to 1. And remember, in the ancient world, the general feeling was that your God could really show power within their own geography, but not outside of their geography. That's why in the Greek mythology, you have like Poseidon. Poseidon can show a lot of power in the realm of the sea, but if you get him into the sky, he loses some of his power. That's how the ancient myths work. You had gods over certain areas, and then they could only work on the home turf. They couldn't work on the away turf. Here's the music of the background of this passage. Jesus is not only one against 6,000. He is a visitor on the, home, on the away turf. 
He's no longer in Israel among the Jewish people. He is now outside among the Gentile people. In other words, he's going to have to fight here with one hand tied behind his back. And what does he do? He expels the demons with a word. Go. What I love about Jesus here is the compassion he shows. I could not stress enough how much of a lunatic this man would be viewed as. The sexual harassment, the physical abuse that he would hurl on people. He would do things that would disgust you if we described them from this pulpit, what somebody in the first century demonic possessed would do. This man is everything that this community does not want to deal with. In their eyes, he could not be banished quickly enough. And yet Jesus looks on him. Everybody sees a problem. Jesus sees a person. Jesus is moved with compassion. He sees through it all. All the abuse this man has endured and hurled, the oppression from the demons, all the past trauma that may or may not have led to the demons in this man's life, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's one thing to heal a leper who's a pretty good guy. We'd all agree he should be healed. But this man does not deserve the attention of God. And yet Jesus, because he's loving and full of grace and compassion, sees what nobody else sees. This is a person behind this madness. The community sees a lunatic. Jesus sees a person in pain. Number four, the demonic removal. Strange turn of events, verse 33, the townspeople come out. I'm expecting a celebration. I'm expecting like prodigal son type stuff. Remember the prodigal goes in and they throw him a party? You'd expect that here. He's just freed this community and this man from a demon, from 6,000 of them. If ever you were going to throw somebody a party, I think this would be it. You think they'd invite Jesus into town. They'd come out into those tombs and say, come on into one of our houses. We're going to let this visiting rabbi just stay here and teach and cast out demons and do as many miracles as he would like. And yet the opposite takes place. The people come out and they want Jesus to get back on the boat and go back to the other side. This is unbelievable. Everybody wants him to leave. Except one person. The one that Jesus delivered. And, of course, you find that in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged him. That word begged is very strong. I want you to picture a beggar on the street. You ever been followed around by a beggar, third world, reaching hands into the pocket? I mean, really aggressive beggar. That's the word you find in the text here. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. As Jesus is getting on the boat, this man is absolutely begging Jesus you got to picture what's happening here. In this man's world, when Jesus delivers you, you physically follow Jesus. That's all he knows. Because the 12 apostles are there. Mary Magdalene's there. Susanna's there. Joanna's there. Remember, they all followed Jesus to the other side in a boat. And as they're on the other side in a boat, Jesus delivers this man. What is he thinking? He's thinking, I'm going to be like one of these 12 people, plus the women. He's thinking, Jesus delivered them, and they got in the boat. Now I'm going with him. And so there he is, walking back to the boat. you got Thomas over here. you got Nathaniel over here. Mary Magdalene's in the back. Susanna's in the front. He feels like one of the 12 apostles right now. He's the 13th man. And he tries to get in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus says, not so fast. <laughs> You're going to stay here and be a witness for me. I imagine to some degree the man's heart sank. And we'll get back to this in a moment. I want to take a minute here, in just a couple minutes, talk about each of these points. Um, 
here's three thoughts that I think we can think about from this passage. Let's talk about the dangers of consumerism, the faith of uh, faith of being free from consumerism. What, are the, what is the dilemma of consumerism? There's a problem here I want to work through. And then the change that comes when God delivers us from anything, but in this case, consumerism. So let's talk about consumerism for, for a few minutes here. First of all, a few points. The economy, in consumerism, the economy becomes the functional savior of the people, right? We're talking about 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. Jesus has just upset the economy. That's why the people are upset. Why would they not want Jesus to stay? And the answer is, he's already disrupted their economy. They do not want him to disrupt this economy anymore. Here's a definition of consumerism uh, from an, an author. We can find fulfillment by accumulating wealth and everything that comes with it. It tells us that all our needs can be satisfied by what we consume. In other words, wealth becomes our functional savior. I don't think if you walked out into the street anybody would, and you said, what do you hang your hopes and dreams on to anybody downtown here in Ridgefield? Nobody's going to say on the local economy, on good paying jobs, but we live like that's true. Nobody says it with their mouth, but we do it with our actions, right? I was reading a book, Hidden World Views. It's one we used for a small group here at RBC years ago. And he talks about consumerism and he gives a little illustration. This is very small, something to think about. He says, um, he says where, you're, where, you're, where your cultural savior is friendships, which he's not echoing, he's just saying this is something people do. He says, before you take a job, you're going to think deeply because you're going to move away from your friends. He says, but when your functional savior is the economy, you will always take a better paying job. You don't even ask what you're going to lose. Now think about how many of us make decisions that way. We'll move halfway across the country. You don't even know if there's a church in that town. We'll move away from family and friends. Now, if that's God's will, have at it. I moved down to South Carolina for a number of years. But we want to ask other questions. Consumerism says you always go where there's more money because that's the functional savior. Because that delivers us from despair. If we have more money, if we have more clothes, if we have more cars, if we have better paying jobs, that's what's going to rescue us from despair. Remember 1991, the movie Mobsters? Arnold Rothstein to Lucky Luciano? Charlie, what's the secret of America? Money. Money is everything, Charlie. That's what a lot of us believe. Money becomes the driving force behind all our decisions. And by the way, just like we see in this passage, another thought, consumerism will drive us to do very irrational things. We'll take a job that puts you in a morally compromising position, but hey, it pays a lot of money. We'll chase a buck, even at the expense of our family. I remember when Mar- Martha Stewart was uh, convicted of uh, insider trading. Uh, you know what I didn't know at the time, and I read this after. Martha Stewart, you know she's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of, she's, she's got more money than we'll ever, well, more money than I'll ever see. I'm not speaking for you. <laughs> more, more money than I'll ever see in my whole life. Well, you're like, yeah, me too, Pat. Yeah. You know how much money she made off that deal? $50,000. That is the most irrational. Can you imagine you're risking going to jail when you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars just to make possibly $50,000? That is absolutely and utterly irrational. But when money is the driving force of your heart and the driving force of your life, you're willing to risk everything just to accumulate a little bit more. 
Because you're making all your decisions not through the lens of God's will, but through the lens of how I can pad my pockets. Money creates the illusion that everything is okay in the community. In this local city where Jesus delivers someone from demonic activity, we know that demon's not the only one. We know there's another one that Matthew actually identifies. And we have good reason to believe that there's all kinds of brokenness throughout this this city and this village and these people. But you can't see it. Because they have a good, thriving local economy. And they believe that as long as the economy is okay, everything is all right. The fact of the matter is, if you ask a hundred people, how can we make your life better off? Almost every 100 will say, if I have more money. That's because money is the functional savior of most of us. Money keeps us from seeing the real needs in the community. Money keeps us from seeing what people really need. Remember that passage in Luke chapter 4? Is it 4? Yeah, 3 or 4, where, where Peter and John are walking through Jerusalem, and there's a man that's congenitally lame. He's, that means he was uh, born lame. He's never been able to walk. He's now an adult. People would pass by this guy all the time, and he'd ask for money. So he looks at Peter and John, and he says, can I have some money? And Peter says this. He says, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus, arise, get up, and walk. And the man gets up. He's healed. It's amazing, you know? There's an old story about Thomas Aquinas that's visiting Rome in the Vatican, and the Pope is showing him around somewhere there in the 12th, 13th century maybe. And he's showing Aquinas all these beautiful buildings that they now have in Rome that are owned by the Christian people. And, and as he shows them one, he looks with a, a smirk and he says to Thomas Aquinas, no longer do we have to say, silver and gold have I none. To which Aquinas says, you're right. And no longer can we say, arise, get up and walk. And Aquinas there, whether that's apocryphal or not, understood the point that when you make money the center of your world, you become irrational and spiritually powerless because they that worship worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What I really want us to see on this one point is this. Consumerism will lead us to depersonalize people. We dehumanize people. When we put that kind of premium on money and that kind of premium on goods and we're willing to chase it at all costs, we will dehumanize people around us. And that's what's happening. They care more about the pigs than they do this man. And they care more about the pigs than they do their neighbor. In modern terms, we care more about the economy than the hurting people around us. Let me back up. We care more about our economy than the people around us. Materialism has a way of depersonalizing people. So we don't care about our neighbor. We care about our 401k. And that gets to the heart of what Luke is bringing out here. That's why they want Jesus to leave. He's disrupted them. I don't have a lot of time to talk on this next point, but here's the, here's the dilemma of consumerism. And uh, we could do a whole sermon on, on this. By the way, these people are an example of the wayside soil. Remember the parable Jesus said? And the gospel is preached, and immediately, you know, the devil comes and takes something away. This passage really illustrates that because the gospel is preached. They see deliverance, but they don't believe in Jesus. How do you not believe in Jesus with this much evidence in front of you? And the answer is this, because faith is not a purely intellectual exercise. That's another mistake sometimes we Christians make. 
We think that if we can just present the right arguments and just give people the right evidence, then they'll come to faith in God and eventually faith in Jesus. What we fail to take into account is believing in God and believing in Jesus is as much about our hearts as it is about the head. What's keeping the people from believing in Jesus here is not the lack of evidence. They're staring at evidence in the face. It's the fact that they don't want to part with their money. The cost is going to be too great for them. The risk is too great. They're making a decision when they have a lot of skin in this game. They are not just God. It's never just a purely intellectual exercise. Confused when God works in a different way. Think it not strange when that happens. Because sometimes God burdens us, but he's going to redirect us in that burden. And that's what's happening in this man's life. Just like Paul wanted to go to Bithynia in Acts 16. He had a huge burden for the people in Bithynia, but he ends up being redirected to Philippi where a church is planted. This man has a burden to get in the boat and be a witness and follow Jesus. But Jesus says, you could be a far bigger light right here in your hometown than following me all the way across the sea to another land. I love this passage in the Old Testament where David has a big burden to build that temple. I mean, a big burden. There's one thing, David would give everything up just to build a temple for God. In fact, he's so convinced this is God's will, he gets his friend Nathan. Nathan the prophet. Nathan, I want to build a temple for God. Nathan looks at him and says, do all your heart desires. How could that not be God's will for you? But then God gives a word to Nathan. Nathan comes back, and what does Nathan say? David as big as that burden is in your heart, that is not God's will for you. That's going to be for another person. And David has to back off that which is a big burden in his heart. Another thought here is not all God's people should be doing the same thing at the same time. I can only tell you that if you didn't have this encounter where Jesus tells the man not to get in the boat, you might look at this man and think he's less spiritual than Matthew. You might think he's less spiritual than Peter. I mean, after all, Peter's given up everything to follow Jesus literally and physically. Peter even gave up his profession. This man won't even give up his hometown. I mean, you could really press this point, right? Did he deliver this guy or not? Why won't this guy follow Jesus like everybody else? And of course, that's because it's not God's will for his life. He'd be glad to do that. Not all of God's people need to be doing the exact same thing at the exact same moment. And we can look around the church where people are at different stages in life, different stages, and God is leading in different ways. Some are called to get in the boat. Others are called to stay on the shore. Others are called to go somewhere else. Some are called to give to X. Some are called to give to Y. Some are called to work in this ministry. Some are called to work in that. And we can move with a profound thankfulness that God is working in different people in different ways rather than feeling that someone is less spiritual than us because God has called them to do something else. Last point is this. The change in this man's life goes public. Goes public. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Return to your house and declare how much God has done for you. And when he went away, proclaiming the truth of the soul city, what Jesus had done. This man is a weir. Notice the response of what's happened in this man's life. There's a fear. This guy is changed, and his friends and neighbors can't quite understand it. 
And the same thing is often true when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, when you repent and you follow him. You're living for something, and you're in a certain direction, and God turns you and puts you in another direction. We can't expect everybody around us to understand that. It says they're gripped with fear. I'll give you a great verse. Go read Psalm 40 sometime. He put a new song in my mouth. Many will see it and fear and trust in the Lord. That new song, you know what that is, you musicians? You know what a new song is? new song is a metaphor for the change that takes place in someone's life. Like you're walking down the road and there's a music fair and you get to a certain shop and you're like, so there's a different song going on in there, you know? New song in the Psalms is a metaphor for gospel change. He put gospel change in my heart. Many shall see and fear and trust the Lord. This man's change goes public. A lot of people are gripped with fear. But Jesus says, you stay there because many are going to see it and trust in the Lord. May God use the change in our lives. It comes from deliverance to draw people to him, even as people are confused sometimes about those changes that are in our lives. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, your commitment to us. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. Pray, Lord, you speak to us in a special way. I ask God that you would deliver us from the sin of consumerism. This is every one of us is going to struggle with this, where we just make goods and services the center of our lives. We don't want to be moved with guilt today. We want to be moved with deliverance. So we dare not point the finger at another, but we look inside our own hearts. And Lord, we remember the verse you gave Jonah. They that worship worthless idols will forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Strengthen us and encourage us so that we can turn away from those worthless idols and receive your power. To say silver and gold have I none. It's okay to be broke. But we also want to be able to say arise, get up and walk. And the power of God rest on our lives. All glory belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Going to move into our communion time today. If you didn't receive a little packet of communion, a little prepackaged, uh, I will ask Roy to make his way down the aisle, and you can grab one of these. Okay. Going to do a um, corporate reading today. Read together. This is a confession. This is something where we confess our sins to the Lord. Something that we're told to do. We're told to do it to one another, and today we do it. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, so that our sinful bodies may be cleaned by his bodies, and our souls by the most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell with him in us. Amen. That first part tells us not to trust in our own righteousness. Your own righteousness can be anything. I'm a good person because I'm a good family man. 
I'm a good person because I'm not like those people over there. I'm a good person because I show up to work on time. I'm not a hypocrite like people that show up to work on time. It can be anything. Our own righteousness is the thing we trust in to make us right with God. And our call as Christians is not to trust in anything that we do, but to trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one that delivers us, the one that forgives us. If we will live in that moment of trusting Christ, live in that space of trusting Jesus, it will relieve us from feeling like we need to be our own saviors and we will be able to fly freely spiritually. We're told with the first element, for I received, Paul says, from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've remarked before that one of the amazing things about the Lord's Supper is the context in which it took place. Jesus in the Lord's Supper is blessing and loving people that are about to betray him. I want you to think about this for a minute. What if you knew that the person next to you right now, just over the next day, was going to absolutely betray you? How do you think you'd treat him? I'd have a hard time loving a person like that. Thankfully, that doesn't happen often, right? But you know what? Jesus knew that. He knew these people were going to betray him. And what did he say? This is my body which is broken for you. That is love. Loving people that we know are going to hurt us. That's not just forgiving those that have hurt us, but even living under the sky of grace and the sky of God's love. May that kind of love resonate in our hearts because of the gospel of Jesus. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Amen.